Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, June 9th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. ASCO wrapped up. We've got a recap of the biggest news from the world's largest cancer research conference. We'll start by discussing the biggest news in the life sciences, including a pair of potential new COVID-19 vaccines, as well as updates in ALS and depression. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT, and I'm here with Charles Fuchs, Head of Oncology Product Development at Genentech. Charlie, I know the role of inclusivity is widely discussed within biotech, but why is it so critical, especially for cancer treatment? Well, Angus, at Genentech, we believe that inclusivity is essential. We ask ourselves every step of the way, how can our clinical trials reflect real-world disease demographics and How can we gather data that are more representative of the patient populations we treat to create a future where every person with cancer receives medicines that are right for them? We're asking these questions to deliver on the promise of personalized care and to optimize treatment outcomes for all cancer patients. Join us in asking these bigger questions at gene.com forward slash ask bigger questions that's g-e-n-e dot com forward slash ask bigger questions so my friends i just got back from chicago so i've been kind of oblivious to everything else that is going on meg you were covering a, another fda advisory panel for a vaccine for covid what happened Yes, we are in the month of many FDA advisory panels and CDC advisory panels for COVID vaccines, the first of which focused on Novavax's vaccine. This is a primary two-dose series for adults. Um, This is the first one that is a protein-based vaccine with an adjuvant, so a sort of more tried-and-true technology Uh, And it got a positive vote, 21 to 0, with just one abstention in favor of recommending it receive emergency use authorization. And this despite, you know, some some issues along the way. I mean, clearly, uh, this was very delayed uh, compared with the clearance of the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines and the J&J vaccine. They completed their trial last year before Omicron emerged, so they don't have any efficacy data against Omicron. They do have some, you know, immunogenicity data. Um, So that was kind of interesting. One of the advisors called it the elephant in the room. But at the same time, they said, you know, this application essentially looks identical or very, very similar to the original Pfizer and Moderna applications. And if we're applying the same standard, then we should vote in favor of this one as well. Of course, everybody's probably heard the discussion that perhaps there are some people out there, there are 27 million unvaccinated American adults right now, according to the CDC. There was some hope expressed by Peter Marks at the FDA that perhaps some of those people were waiting for a more traditional vaccine type. They didn't want mRNA. They didn't want J&J. I think a lot of the advisory committee members expressed skepticism that this was actually going to sway a significant number of people into getting vaccinated. Um, But, you know, people I talked to said it is important to have more options. We still need to continue optimizing these vaccines because SARS-CoV-2 isn't going anywhere. And so we have to figure out the best way to use them. 
Yeah, I thought it was interesting, this concept of, of these protein vaccine fans who are just waiting in the wings for their preferred technology to become available. But to the credit of the Washington Post, uh, they had a story earlier this week where they found a few of these people who, you know, to your point, the concept of messenger RNA and, and you know, newfangled science in general made them a little skittish. And so they were looking forward specifically to the Novavax vaccine. But the opposite of a silver lining to that is that a lot of them, or at least people that, that the Post spoke to, were hoping that the Novavax vaccine wouldn't have the rare but but actual risk of heart inflammation that we've seen with messenger RNA vaccines. But as you know from the briefing documents and from the discussion with the FDA, there are rare cases of myocarditis, um, as it's called, in the Novavax trial. I know the company has disputed the FDA's characterization there, but you know, in, in that post story, which I recommend people read, there were a few people kind of expressing or lamenting the fact, basically, that this vaccine that they were apparently holding out for is perhaps not exactly as they had hoped it would be. When I envision these people in my heads, they all have AOL.com email addresses. Yeah, I think, you know, the myocarditis discussion was actually one of the more interesting facets of the day. Um, I personally always sort of perk up when Paul Offit chimes in. Um, for, he's the vaccine scientist from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, who's a member of the FDA's advisory committee. Um, he, he just has a really good way of sort of crystallizing a lot of the conversations. Um and his one of his only sort of comments throughout the entire day was not about the Novavax vaccine itself, but about whether there is something about this virus and the way the vaccines target it that will cause this rare risk of myocarditis for many of the vaccines. And so he sort of spurred this discussion of have, you know, has the CDC seen this in databases either with the J&J vaccine or overseas with the AstraZeneca vaccine? It didn't sound like they were hearing about it there. There are other vaccines, you know, rolled out around the world it seems really important to understand how big of a risk myocarditis would be with this initial crop of vaccines and if there are ways of improving them so that this rare risk can be diminished. So, Damien, as we mentioned, uh, the Novavax vaccine, so the data that's sort of missing from this is anything, any efficacy data against the Omicron variant. But we did get some Omicron variant data from Moderna this week, right? That's right. Yeah. So Moderna has developed what they call a bivalent vaccine, which is to say it's mRNA. And part of it encodes for the spike protein of the original SARS-CoV-2 and another encodes for the spike protein of Omicron. And the company ran a trial enrolling, I think, upwards of 400 people to determine that its bivalent vaccine, the combo vaccine, had a significantly stronger effect on antibodies, basically people generating antibodies against the virus, which is good. Everyone's happy about that. They intend to file it with the FDA, and it's widely expected to get uh, an emergency use authorization of its own in time. So I think the, the question on a lot of people's minds is, what does this mean practically? So I think Moderna's intention is to substitute the bivalent vaccine for the old-fashioned version um, in a lot of the orders that it already has filed with governments around the world once it's authorized. And I think the company is looking at it to be sort of the tip of the spear of their push to get people to get more boosters before next winter when there could be another surge. But it kind of underlines all the same questions that, that we've discussed and, and that have been commonly discussed for the past year, which is that it's still unclear just how much demand there will be, both from regular people choosing to get boosted for what might be 
a fourth time for some people. And furthermore, from you know, governments around the world who will be ordering these vaccines, because we've seen the demand tailing off, seems like relatively dramatically for the companies that uh, that were had the originator vaccines for COVID-19. Hey, Meg, does this vaccine, the, the new Moderna one, does it cover like the most current like sub variants of Omicron, the ones that are kind of causing a lot of the this recent wave of infection? Do they have data on that? So that is the key question. As much as Novavax was sort of you know, criticized for not having efficacy data on Omicron at all. Moderna doesn't have immunogenicity data, or at least didn't report any this week, on the currently circulating subvariants of Omicron. So the version of the spike uh, that is the second part of the vaccine is the original Omicron. Um, and so now we, of course, know we've gone through BA2. We're on BA2.12.1 here in the U.S. as the <laughs> dominant strain now. And we are watching BA4 and 5 start to rise. And so Moderna was asked about this on their conference call with analysts. And they essentially suggested they see maybe a two to three fold decrease in the uh, antibody titers against BA4 and 5 compared with BA1. They said the level of antibodies that they saw um, with against BA1 should still leave them in a comfortable position. But I was talking with a couple of virologists yesterday who sort of criticized the release for not having a whole lot of like really useful information like that. The fact that, you know, the currently circulating variants and the ones that many people expect could come to dominance, BA4 and 5, you know, within the next few months, we still don't know what the numbers are uh, from this vaccine against those. Um, you know, we're also waiting for Pfizer's data. So we'll see if Pfizer presents those, but they are also testing a bivalent protecting against Omicron and the original, uh, as well as Omicron alone and, and the original alone. And they're also looking at higher doses of boosters as well. All of this ahead of the last FDA advisory committee meeting this month on June 28th, when they're set to discuss how to update the vaccines for the fall. We should note in between, of course, we get a lot of discussion of kids' vaccines. That's all next week. So I really appreciate you guys keeping up to date on all this stuff, because like I said, I was gone and didn't know any of this. Um, let's switch gears to uh, a depression drug that had a clinical trial readout this week. Damien, you've been covering this company, Praxis. What happened? It failed. That's the headline. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I know, right. Well, so, we can move on now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was interesting heading into this data readout, so Praxis is, is a, a smallish company that went public a couple years ago and uh, was developing this depression drug, which was similar in terms of target uh, as the Sage Therapeutic Depression Drug that I know we've spoken about on this podcast, which has succeeded in clinical trials, but left a window open um, in terms of the effect size and some of the side effects that it led to. And Praxis, um, for lots of good and interesting and, and viable scientific reasons, believed that its drug might be more effective and have fewer side effects. The answer we got on Monday is that no, it did not. And no, it was not. The company didn't release details other than saying that the drug failed on its primary and secondary endpoints, which related to reducing the symptoms of depression uh, for people with major depressive disorder compared with placebo. But it just, I mean, the whole thing underlines how maddening and frustrating not only neuroscience can be, but specifically the quest to find new treatments for depression. Until fairly recently, there had not been a new approved mechanism to treat depression in a number of decades. And even, uh, you know, more recently approved medicines leave 
a lot to be desired. And it's just a space that, you know, for any of us who've like kind of delved into the drug development there is just marked by complications stacked on complication, both scientifically, but then also practically with clinical trials, because dealing with the placebo effect is, I mean, has derailed countless programs just in, in my short memory. I was going to ask you, Damien, did they mention anything about how the placebo arm and that suggests, because that's, that is the thing that always trips up a lot of these, you know, depression studies is you get, you know, you get a profound placebo effect that, um, you know, the drug sort of works the way it's supposed to work, but then the placebo arm or the control arm works just so much more, so so much better than expected, uh, and the study fails. Yeah, so Praxis did not disclose the details of, you know, placebo performance versus the drug, other than to say that the drug did not succeed. Um, but one thing the company was proud of was its approach in designing this trial, such that patients who were screened to enter it actually took the, you know, depression symptom questionnaire three times, administered by three different practitioners, and who had no knowledge of their prior scores, and then anyone whose scores deviated more than 20% could not enroll in the study. And the idea was that this would normalize it such that you got the right patient population, which is to say people who really did have major depressive disorder, and thus theoretically, you could, you know, remove some of the unpredictability of the placebo response. And obviously, in this case, that didn't work. We also had some news um, in the last week on Amelix, which is a company we spent a lot of time talking about uh, and their ALS drug and sort of their journey through the FDA. Um, Adam, what's the latest? Yeah, journey is a good word here. Uh, maybe delayed journey is what we should say. Yeah, so late last week, they announced an extension of the FDA review by another three months. Um, the FDA had requested some additional clinical data from Amelix. Amelix sent them the data, and then the FDA asked for some more time to review it. Um, it's really interesting because, as maybe folks remember here, uh, back in late March, uh, the FDA held an advisory panel meeting about this Amlex drug, which, again, as we said, is a treatment for ALS. And, you know, the FDA was pretty critical of the study. They didn't really think that uh, the study demonstrated uh, sufficient efficacy in the drug. And then they had this advisory panel, which voted. It was, it was a close vote, but the vote did favor uh, the FDA's position, meaning that they didn't think that the, the study supported approval. So I think a lot of people walked away from that, you know, some obviously somewhat discouraged if you're uh, an ALS patient or a family member or an advocate, because obviously there's a lot of demand or a lot of interest in this. Um, but, you know, I think the, the feeling walking away in March was that the FDA was not going to approve the drug based on the study. So here we have this news last week where the FDA at least, I mean, it's one of those things where like the FDA didn't say no. Uh, you know, they were supposed to have a decision on this by the end of June, and now it's pushed out three months. So I guess there's a, you know, it's there. That's the, there's that classic uh, Jim Carrey meme, right? Is, you know, there's a chance. Um, there's a chance here for uh, for an FDA approval. I, you know, I mean, I don't think we really have any way of knowing 100 percent what might happen in three months. But uh, at least they did not say no at this point. This, of course calls to mind, yeah, a conversation we had just a little over a year ago um, after a negative advisory committee vote for a drug, followed by that drug's FDA decision date getting pushed back by three months to consider additional data, and then that drug winning approval, I believe, June 7th, 2021, which, of course, was Aduhelm. What drug was that? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Well, the surprise. Yes. Yeah, yeah. People may oh, recall. It yeah. Alzheimer's drug. Right. Yes. Now, granted, it is the same division of the FDA. It is the same advisory committee minus the resignations that ensued from the Aduhelm thing. But I think it's generally unwise to look at these things as precedent setting or as 
really anything when it comes to the FDA. We have no idea which way they're going to decide on on the Amelix drug. But it is, I guess, worth remembering that we have been here before. So to kind of button up our chatty Kathy segment uh, back where we began, uh, we should circle back on Novavax because, Damien, this was just a recommendation from the FDA's panel of outside advisors. The FDA, of course, needs to make its own decision. And CNBC.com had some reporting this morning that I think bolstered something we had already seen in the AdCom documents, which suggested this might not come immediately, uh, or at least not as quickly as we've seen perhaps for previous vaccines, right? Yes, the Novavax submission to the FDA seems to be kind of a, a living document. We've been watching it assemble itself for the better part of a year, and apparently it is not totally entirely complete. We learned, as you mentioned from the the advisory committee, that Novavax still owes the agency some information, basically just confirming that the way it manufactures the vaccine in question now commercially uh, matches up to the way it manufactured it for these clinical trials. That's usually a box checking exercise in, in drug development and FDA approvals. But every single thing that Novavax has promised in the past year has come with a delay. And so the notion that this vaccine will, if it is to win an emergency authorization, the idea that it'll happen within a handful of weeks, as did for prior vaccines, is maybe not going to be accurate, both because of this lag, uh, apparently, in data that the FDA needs, and also because you know the, the immediacy, this being this would be the fourth vaccine available in the United States, does not exist the way that it did in you know early 2021 when we went through this with Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. Last weekend, thousands of cancer researchers, uh, biotech analysts and investors, doctors and journalists descended on Chicago for the first time in two years since the pandemic began for the annual American Society of Clinical Oncology Conference, the world's largest conference on cancer research. Adam was one of them. Uh, and just this week, I saw a tweet from Tatiana Prowell, uh, who's an oncologist I follow on Twitter. Yeah, that was just yesterday, last night. That was just yesterday. Yeah. yeah, we record this on Thursday mornings. She she tweeted, good news. A ton of you who attended ASCO are taking COVID-19 rapid tests. Bad news. A ton of you are testing positive. Entertaining news. <laughs> you're all texting me the pics. I'm not a contact tracer, but patterns are emerging. Please tell each other to not just me. Hashtag onk Twitter. Uh, Adam? Any news for us? Yeah, so I just i i started the i started my test. Uh, I am negative, Meg. I Yay. am looking at my little strip, and there's just one blue line, no other lines. So yeah. So tell us about the rest of the meeting, other than COVID. Well, I mean, to, to kind of to to sort of stick to this topic, yeah. So there were, I think, about just over thirty thousand people in attendance. A typical big big ASCO, let's say pre-COVID, was about forty forty five thousand people in attendance. Meg, you know, you've been to you've been to many ASCOs, so you know the convention center, the McCormick Place Convention Center. It's huge. Um, but even even with its vast size, like it's crowded in that place, right? With a lot of people. And it was. It really felt full when you were walking around. And that part of that was probably just, you know, most of us were not used to being in kind of crowds like that for, you know, two plus years. So all of those people were there, of course, to hear about the latest data on what are hopefully the latest and greatest treatments for cancer. And maybe a, a place to start, Adam, I saw there was a session who, that at its conclusion elicited a standing ovation from the gathered crowd. What data did they see that, that got them to do that? 
Yeah. So I think the data of the meeting was uh, a breast cancer study done by Daiichi Senkyo and AstraZeneca for their uh, for their antibody drug conjugate and HER2. Uh, this was a study that was done in patients with metastatic breast cancer. It showed really a profound reduction in not only in tumor progression, but also, you know, most importantly, a, a nice, a very substantial increase in survival. And, you know, it's really hard to run a study where you show a sizable increase in survival for patients in the metastatic breast cancer setting. Um, so this was one of those practice changing. You, you always hear that term when you go to these conferences, you know, is something practice changing, meaning, you know, will doctors see these data, go back to their patients and, you know, start to prescribe this medicine for their patients? And a resounding yes with in her two in these patients. Uh, like you said, there was uh, there was a standing ovation. So there's like I said, there's this giant plenary session. It's in this gigantic hall. There's tens of thousands of people there. The presentation ends. The discussion ends, and literally people got up and applauded. And that's a really rare thing at these kind of medical meetings. And as a matter of fact, I was trying to think of the last time I was at ASCO where there was a standing ovation. And I do remember, and I confirm this with some other people, like longtime uh, oncologists who've been to many ASCOs, the last time that they remember a standing ovation at ASCO was in 2005 for the Roche Genentech breast cancer drug Herceptin, uh, which at that point, those were data in the adjuvant setting where they showed a survival benefit. It was, again, it was another practice-changing study there was a standing ovation here. What's really sort of what's interesting and sort of from a historical perspective in this link is that in her two, actually the sort of the, the antibody that uh, is uh, that's part of in her two is actually kind of a kind of a next generation Herceptin. I mean, it's 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 a little bit different. It's modified, but it is there's that sort of this historical link between those two presentations, which I thought was kind of interesting. So tell us about, you know, what is practice changing about this study? What will this mean for people with breast cancer? Well, you know, as a lot of people know, you know, breast cancer is characterized by hormone status and other sort of genetic factors. So for a lot of women who have breast cancer with uh, what is HER2 positive, which is a protein found on the receptor, or, or the, which is a protein receptor found on the surface of cancer. So for those women who have HER2 positive breast cancer, they are treated with uh you know, HER2 targeted antibodies, like I said, like Herceptin, and for a long time, like in HER2. Um, what was interesting about this study is that they enrolled patients who, well, they call them HER2 low, which meant they have very, very low levels of HER2 on the surface of these breast cancer cells, um, to the point that in, in years past, these women would have been considered HER2 negative, and they would have gone a, sort of a different route for their treatment. But with this drug, they were able to show that you could take these women who have HER2 low um, breast cancer and treat them with a HER2 targeted drug in HER2 and get these profound benefits, you know, the survival benefits. So it really does kind of open up this new way of treating uh, patients with breast cancer where like a, a, most women now who who get breast cancer, who, 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 well, let's say, say most women who unfortunately have breast cancer that progresses so that it gets into the metastatic setting will uh, find benefit from and her too. So that's kind of why you've got the standing ovation. That's why people are calling it practice changing. So it feels like almost every cancer conference for the last couple of years has also been something of a referendum on Gilead Sciences, a company we talk about a lot, whose incredible success in virology was followed up with 
a quixotic path to becoming a player in developing cancer treatments that might have practice changing data like you just described. So I don't what, what what's the Gilead news coming out of ASCO? Are, are they up or down? Am I being too crass about this? But like, wh- where do they stand? Yeah, you know, if the big winners uh, from a kind of a corporate perspective were uh, AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo, I, I think the biggest loser, uh, and I hate to use that term, but it's kind of true. Uh, the biggest loser coming out of ASCO from a corporate perspective was Gilead Sciences. And partly because of InHerTube, because uh, that drug will compete against the breast cancer drug that Gilead bought. It's called Tridelvi. Um, they spent $22 billion to acquire that drug through the acquisition of Immunomedics back in 2020. And they were hoping that at this ASCO that they would have a study that would show uh, you know, a benefit for patients and would expand the use of Tridelvi into patients in with into patients with that HER2 negative uh, type of breast cancer. You know, it was one of these things where the study was technically positive. You know, it hit statistical significance, but the numerical benefit on tumor progression was really small. Like at the median, it was one and a half months, basically. So the doctors that I spoke to, and I think the doctors, a lot of doctors who a lot of reporters and others spoke to, analysts included, felt like that benefit was just kind of underwhelming uh, and that it really wasn't going to be enough to convince a lot of uh, a lot of doctors to, to use the drug in that setting. It was one of those unfortunate instances where, you know, Gilead just sort of came on the wrong side. You know, they also had some data, an update on another one of their drugs uh, called Magrolimab and... Again, underwhelming. You know, that is a drug they spent about $5 billion to acquire. They bought a company called 47. Uh, this is one of those anti-CD 47 antibodies, like the don't eat the don't eat me cancer signal. Um, again, an update from an earlier study. The, the, the efficacy of that drug just sort of keeps ticking lower every time they update the study to the point now where I think a lot of people are wondering whether they have a couple of ongoing phase three studies, whether those are actually going to work or not, or if they do work, that the benefit will be so small that it'll it'll just won't matter. You know, Dan O'Day, you know, comes into to Gilead, new CEO, and he, you know, he starts buying up a lot of things, doing a lot of deals, but those deals really haven't panned out. Yeah, and there's even a discussion, I think, that Tradelvi, which um, you know, this study was an advanced HR positive HER2 negative breast cancer, which is the most common type of breast cancer. But Tordelvi is also already approved in metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And I saw some discussion from analysts that perhaps and, and HER2 might even encroach in that space, even though these data were not focused there. W- what was your perspective on that, Adam? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a chance of that. So a lot of the physicians that I spoke to uh, including physicians, you know, including physicians who worked on the Gilead study, right? So they're maybe a little bit more inclined to sort of be in Gilead's camp. They admitted to me, they said, look, you know, if we, if, if a patient comes to me, I'm going to use in HER2 first. And uh, if a patient relapses after that, if the, if the tumors grow again, then, then I may reach for Tridelvi. But it's, it's definitely sort of in the number two slot, um, whereas in HER2 is going to get most of the most of the use. There's also a study that got a lot of attention. Um, it was a very small study, uh, but another really seemingly great piece of news, um, a study in rectal cancer that found uh, GlaxoSmithKline's uh, anti-PD-1 antibody um, helped 18 out of 18 
patience in this trial uh, in a setting where they didn't really expect to see such benefit. Right, Adam? Yeah, it was a, a study that got a lot of press. I mean, I know the Times wrote a story about it. Uh, we wrote a story about it. Uh, and what's interesting here, it's an example of where we can use drugs to target a specific in this case, rare genetic mutation, you know, regardless of where the tumor is located. Now, in this case, this was all patients with rectal cancer, but, you know, there have been cases where, you know, it's a very, it's a rare genetic mutation. They call it mismatch repair that occurs in tumor types. Um, and so these drugs are just really effective. And, and what was notable about this study that you mentioned, Meg, was the 100 percent complete response rate. And it's something you don't you just don't see 100 percent remissions of cancer in, in clinical studies. And this, again, this was a small study and it was in a rare mutation, but, you know, that 100% complete remission, which meant that every patient had a complete disappearance of their tumors, you know, that obviously gets a lot of attention. And it's great news, obviously. So finally, among all of the many oncology and oncology adjacent people convening in Chicago was one whose words tend to carry a lot of weight. That's Richard Pazder, who is the head of oncology drug reviewing at the FDA. And Adam, I know uh, you spoke. How is how is Rick doing? Rick's doing great. So uh, Rick Pazder was uh, one of the guests uh, at a STAT event we had on Friday night in Chicago. Uh, we had him talking to, actually, he spoke to Matt Herper, our colleague, uh, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And, you know, like you said, anytime... Rick Pastor speaks in public. People want to know what he says since he's the, you know, the top cancer drug regulator at the FDA. And, you know, they spent a lot of time in the conversation that they had during our event uh, on accelerated approvals and kind of what's going on with uh, with that. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of the FDA about, you know, lax standards, lowering of standards or or mostly like the FDA sort of not following up and sort of forcing companies to confirm the clinical benefit of drugs that are approved under accelerated approval. And, and you know, there's been some efforts in Congress to kind of tighten the rules about that. So, you know, just to make sure that if you are going to sort of speed a drug to market, you know, using accelerated approval, that you you do the confirmatory study quickly enough so that you can find out whether or not there is actually a true benefit. And if there is not, then you want to remove that drug from the market because it's not helping people. Um, you know, and like I said, you know, the FDA has obviously taken its lumps on this and its share of criticism. Um, maybe n most noteworthy was Rick sort of just rejected uh, that you know the FDA has any real responsibility here. He sort of liked, he he placed a lot of the blame on uh, the drug makers uh, and the drug industry for for the way that they design the studies in the first place. Um, you know, and particularly in using uh, single arm studies, you know, to get accelerated approval. You know, what I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but you know, he wants to see more randomized controlled studies uh, used for that purpose. But, uh, you know, he did sort of deflect some criticism and sort of wanted to sort of foist that blame on drug makers. You know, it's uh, not exactly the same situation, but I have been hearing sort of a conversation brewing uh, ever since the CMS decision on Aduhelm, to bring this back to our favorite topic, um, that separate from the idea of pulling a drug off the market if its confirmatory trials don't bear out, you know, when it's been approved under the accelerated pathway, uh, but that 
the prices perhaps should change or the willingness to pay for drugs um, should change based on whether they're approved through the accelerated pathway or, you know, have the confirmatory evidence. I've heard this, you know, from the sort of worried about this happening from the biotech side of things. And I've heard this advocated that it should happen from the, you know, critics of how drugs are priced side of things. Um, I, I don't know if anything will actually change. And I've also heard that it's more complicated than just saying, okay, when you're approved under the accelerated approval pathway, your, your drug should be priced lower. Because in some situations, pe- experts I've talked to have pointed out, you know, drugs can be really obviously very helpful when they're only cleared through accelerated approval. Uh, it's when the um, evidence is not clear that I think some people think the payment schemes should be changed. Yeah, you know, that didn't come up in the conversation. You know, obviously the FDA can't really uh, use price or just can't use price uh, as a review. But I, I've heard those same kind of conversations, Meg, uh, and I, it's a it's a complex issue. You know, Adjuhelm, uh did come up during the event. Matt asked um, Matt asked Rick Pastor, you know, what lessons he learned from the Adjuhelm accelerator approval. Because um, if you guys recall... Folks here recall um, that you know the the division within FDA, the neuroscience division with FDA that that uh, that ultimately approved Adjuhelm, they they consulted with Rick Pastor because they again they wanted to kind of carve out this new accelerated approval pathway for an Alzheimer's drug that had never been done before. So who better to go to than the man at the FDA who who dishes out more accelerated approvals than anybody, which is Rick Pastor, um, and you know he again like you know he. He didn't want to talk about the specifics of that decision or about the specifics about whether or not Adjahelm would be approved. But he he did sort of he did he kind of obliquely mentioned it where he talked. He said, look, he said, if you're going to take on a new endpoint for a disease and obviously referring to, uh, you know, the lowering of amyloid plaques in the brains of Alzheimer's patients, which is what which formed the basis for the accelerated approval at home. He said that you you really need to communicate it early and with the community. And I'm quoting him here. Everything went, everyone is not going to agree, but you need to give people the chance to comment and get some buy-in. And that should be done outside of an application. Because once you start with an application, a lot of other issues come into play, end quote. So, you know, I think what he was referring to there was this kind of idea that the FDA sort of sprung the accelerated approval of Adrahelm upon the world um, without a lot of advanced warning, you know, uh, commentary. There was, you know, there was no ability to kind of people to debate about this. Um, and I guess that's one of the lessons that that Rick Pastor learned from this is that you you need to kind of you need to kind of warn people and give them people a chance to 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 think about these things in advance. Does that do it for another episode of The Read Out Loud? I think that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. (laughs) I think that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Well, I'll say it again. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Ambonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your takeaways from ASCO. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 